Today, I'm very fortunate to be able to welcome to the stage someone very special to introduce our speaker, a well-known actress and activist and current member of the board at Virginia State University, Daphne Maxwell-Reed has a unique connection with today's speaker. In 2003, she was named by President George W. Bush and U.S. Secretary of the Interior Gerald Norton to the 16-member Jamestown 400th Commemoration Commission. During her tenure, Ms. Reed served as Secretary of the Commission, Co-Chair of the Communications and Outreach Committee, and Co-Chair of the African American Advisory Committee to Jamestown. In other words, she was one of our speaker's bosses as he served for five years as executive director of the Jamestown Commission. So please join me in welcoming to the stage Daphne Maxwell-Reed. And he was a good worker. <laughs> Horace Edward Mann, we know him as Chip. H. Edward Mann, a native of Petersburg, Virginia, has held a variety of governmental and political positions. He managed the activities of 37 federal agencies while serving as executive director of the Federal Jamestown 400th Commemorative Commission. His previous federal service included building support for education reform when he was appointed by President George H.W. Bush as special assistant and director of special events for America 2000 for Secretary of Education Lamar Alexander. As an independent public affairs consultant, his clients have included the Virginia Department of Historic Resources, where he developed a highly successful locality-driven program to promote the economic benefits of historic preservation. Now at the College of William and Mary, he doubled majored in philosophy and government and was elected president of the FHC Society, the oldest collegiate fraternal organization in America. Eight months after graduating, he was appointed to the William and Mary Board of Visitors, that's their board of trustees, as the youngest member ever to serve on that body. Mann's special interest revolves around Virginia through the 17th through the 19th centuries. He and his wife live in Richmond, Virginia, and his son, Will, is currently a student at William and Mary. I'd like to introduce my friend, Chip Mann. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Daphne. Uh, and thank you, Paul, and to all the staff of the Virginia Historical Society. Uh, it's an honor to speak here today at what I grew up calling Battle Abbey. Uh, one of my earliest memories in my life is when I was four or five and I rode up here with my father from Petersburg to visit the museum and he would go into the galleries in a very hushed tone and with reverence he would give me the insights that he had on the different artifacts. And then when the museum, I remember it closed because when we came, we came in when the sun was shining, we went out and the sun was down, and we went across the boulevard and we bought flowers from the old gentleman that used to sit out there in the wheelchair. And that started tradition. Every time mama let us come up to Richmond, we'd have to buy her flowers and take them back to Petersburg. Speaking of Petersburg, there's a wonderful story about a Shakespeare company that was touring the South about a century ago, and it stopped to perform the play Richard III in Petersburg. 
After the play was over, a young man came up to one of the matrons of Petersburg Society and said, Miss Wilma, what did you think of that play? And she responded indignantly, what was Shakespeare thinking? All that talk of Richmond and Norfolk, and not once did he mention Petersburg. <laughs> I knew that'd give you a good laugh in Richmond. The special relationship between Virginia and England extends beyond place names like Richmond and Norfolk. It extends to an allegiance to the same political values, even if they're taking, taken with different manifestations. And the Queen's Jubilee, which lasts all year, is an opportunity to recognize Her Majesty the Queen and the role she has held in symbolizing and furthering those political values. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth has made six state visits to the United States, and in three of those, she has visited Virginia. She has come to Virginia more than any other place outside of D.C. and New York. She came in 1957 for the 350th anniversary of Jamestown. She came in 1976 for the Bicentennial, and of course she came in 2007 for the 400th anniversary of Jamestown. Before I talk about how the queen, who is a, in a very fundamental way, represents the political values for Virginia and the United States, as well as the United Kingdom, let us talk about what she is not. <laughs> she is not George III. Interesting thing, I talk to a lot of Americans who are just uh, uh, still stuck in their fourth, fourth grade history lesson uh, about what the powers of the monarchy still hold. Um, it's uh, ironic that it was actually the revolution that changed a lot of those responsibilities, but uh, it, it, there is a, a good reason to kind of point out what the monarch no longer has as far as powers are, are concerned. If you remember in the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson and his co-authors made 19 specific charges against George III and how he had violated the democratic rights of what at the time were English citizens in America. These violations included ignoring the rule of law, refusing to allow the establishment of domestic courts, appointing new judges, disrupting and dissolving colonial legislatures, refusing to call for new elections, preventing free trade and markets, and imposing new taxes. All this was on top of sending troops, and in July of 1776, in what I consider a particularly pithy passage, the Declaration states, he has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. It's very interesting. Uh, John Adams was asked, who is the one person who is most responsible for the success of the American Revolution? And people thought he mentioned himself or they mentioned Thomas Jefferson. No, he pointed to George III. <laughs> so how did things get to that point? Let's do a quick five-minute review of 250 years of monarchs leading up to 1776. Henry VIII, who ruled from April 1509 to 1547, he executed at will, beheading more English notables than any monarch before or since. Two wives, 20 peers, four leading public servants, six of the king's closest attendants and friends, not to mention one cardinal and various heads of monasteries. If you were counting, that's 30. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now over to a good sovereign. 
Henry's daughter, Elizabeth I. She was the Queen of England and Ireland from November 1558 till her death in March 1603. Her tenure was marked by the expansion of England's power and wealth, and of course, the Commonwealth of Virginia is named for her. Elizabeth's cousin's son was King James I, for whom Jamestown was named. He was the King of England from 1603 to 1625. King James believed in the divine right of kings, and he asserted that a monarch was subject to no earthly authority, deriving his right to rule directly from the will of God. Thus, the king is not subject to the will of his people. Charles I, King of England, King of Scotland, King of Ireland, uh, from March 1625 until he was executed in 1649. The main issue, uh, and Americans get a little confused about the English Civil War, the main issue in its simple terms was it was a struggle power between Parliament and the King, and the King lost. The Glorious Revolution, also called the Revolution of 1688, came about due to the overthrow of King James, the son of King Charles, by English parliamentarians with the Dutch William ascending the English throne as William III of England and who reigned jointly with his wife Mary, whose grandfather was Charles I. This action, and the co-regents were William and Mary, this action is when they were made co-regents ended the absolute monarchy in the British kingdom by restricting the monarch's power. They could no longer suspend laws. They could no longer levy taxes without consulting parliament. They could no longer make royal appointments, and they could no longer maintain a standing army without permission. Seventy years after William and Mary, the British throne held by George III. Now, although limits on his power had been made, he effectively bullied his parliament into doing his bidding, and because of his actions and parliament's compliance, we ended our formal relationship with Britain and the monarchy in 1776. In contrast, hold Queen Elizabeth. Her example over the past 60 years sets a standard for promoting democracy as the head of state, the symbolic power and impact that she has for British citizens is palpable. She has very little direct power herself and her personal example of integrity, duty, persuasion, and diplomacy, not to mention her many statements supporting the tenets of freedom, should motivate Americans to pause and appreciate her long life and her constant support of the special relationship. Her personal commitment to democracy is hard to deny. She experienced the very real threat of fascism when, as a young woman during World War II, Buckingham Palace was bombed by the Nazis. Her sense of duty as a teenager led her to volunteer, as shown here, as a, uh, in a British paramilitary unit, where she was a mechanic and learned to repair and maintain military vehicles. During her reign, she has steadfastly supported democratic institutions, many of which we have derived here in America from British antecedents. These four include these four values. Rule of law. The, James, the Virginia Company's detailed instructions to the Jamestown settlers have a direct lineage to the Magna Carta. And the Magna Carta's 800th anniversary is coming up in the year 2015. That document, for the first time, placed limits on the monarch's prerogatives. Yet, 
four centuries later, King James, for whom Jamestown was named, still continued to believe in the divine right of kings. The notion evaporated 80 years later by the time of the joint reign of King William and Queen Mary, and Queen Elizabeth II has stated she has no higher responsibility than service to her people. On the left, the black and white photo shows her at Jamestown in 1957 when she visited the settlement. That is one of the four uh, still surviving copies of the Magna Carta that was loaned to Jamestown uh, during that commemoration. On the uh, uh, right, in the color photo, you see on the left is uh, Chief Justice of the uh, US Supreme Court, John Roberts. In the middle is Sandra Day O'Connor, who was an Associate Justice and who was the honorary chairman um, of the uh, Jamestown 2007 activities. And on the right is the Chief Justice of the British Courts, uh, the British Supreme Court. And the, they have just, uh, this was in April of 2007, they have just unveiled a monument to the rule of law that was uh, uh, contributed by the ends of court. So when you go to Jamestown the next time, you will see that right next to the Archaearium is this uh, new marker uh, talking about the establishment of the rule of law in North America uh, and how it was related to uh, Jamestown. The first settlers in Virginia had few rational policies on how to interact with the indigenous population. And they ended up extremely misguided in their treatment of native Virginians and of Africans after their arrival to Jamestown in 1619. The queen has shown a tolerance and uh, a, a respect for tolerance and diversity. And the subsequent growth of racial and ethnic uh, discrimination over the past, over the two and a half centuries after the Jamestown settlement is the biggest moral stain on America's political development. Yet political institutions across the globe have made extraordinary progress in recognizing and addressing this issue. My co-author, Lord Watson, recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about our book, and in it he said, quote, when she went to Jamestown in 2007 for the 400th anniversary of the first permanent English colony in the New World, she celebrated the language we and the whole world now share, which first found lodgment across the Atlantic at that moment. But she also, with the greatest care, greeted the Indian chiefs representing the tribes that first met the English at that time a step that only someone deeply sensitive to American history and deeply committed to multiracial democracy could have thought to take, end quote. Uh, the, that is uh, the queen with Steve Atkins, and I'm sure that many of you in this room uh, either have met or are good friends with Steve Atkins. Steve was on the Federal Commission for Jamestown, and he uh, is also the chief of the Chickahominy tribe. And this picture was taken at the state capitol uh, when the queen visited in 2007. And I know that look on Steve's face very well. Steve has this line that when things are kind of getting a little crazy, he'll just kind of look at you and go, everything is good. <laughs> so he's just shaking hands with the queen, and he, I think he's thinking to himself, everything is good. Representative government. The Virginia General Assembly first meet, met at Jamestown in the summer of 1619, and it included duly elected representatives who had copied the rules and the processes of the English House of Commons. Colonial legislative sessions and, rep and elected represent representatives were sanctioned for 150 years by the monarchs of England 
until the reign of George III, who dissolved colonial assemblies, and that was one of the reasons for the American Revolution. Currently, the monarch is the symbolic convener of elections in parliament, and a British sovereign's ability to abolish legislatures no longer exists. If you look on the left, that is uh, the Queen and Prince Philip uh, at her opening uh, for Parliament, and that was in 2006. That was when she announced that she was going to visit Jamestown. And on the right, you see uh, her in the well of the House of Delegates at the Capitol in Richmond. Uh, she's accompanied by uh, Governor Kane, and this was before she made her address in 2007. Uh, please note the difference in wardrobe. Now, as good students of Virginia history uh, here in this room, uh, you know that the extraordinary efforts of British settlers to carve out a hospitable existence in Virginia, that these motivations were not based in religious causes. Rather, they were based on the profit motive. In fact, the Virginia Company was one of the first stock companies ever developed. It was incorporated at Middle Temple in London in the spring of 1606, and this investment paid off for decades as the colonies enhanced British prestige and markets. The top uh, drawing is one of those famous Sidney King uh, paintings of uh, uh, the planters uh, planting uh, tobacco in, literally in the streets of Jamestown when they found out that it was going to make a profit. And down uh, the picture below was taken at uh, Guild Hall in London of 2006 to commemorate the incorporation of the Virginia Company. That chest is not the original chest, but there was a chest with instructions for the Virginia Company once they got to Jamestown, uh, that instructing them how they were to govern themselves and how they were supposed uh, to proceed once they had settled. So that was a uh, 17th century chest that was brought out especially for that um, uh, commemoration. Now, the book uh, that uh, Lord Watson and I wrote is the only book that I know that combines photos from the two visits uh, to Jamestown uh, in 1957 and 2007. On the left, you see uh, the Queen and Bill Kelso. Bill Kelso uh, is the archaeologist who worked for the APVA, now Preservation Virginia, uh, that uh, did not want to give up on finding out where the fort was, and through his uh, uh, great energy, he found out the, the fort was uh, right next to the church tower. And so uh, he and the queen toured uh, the site, and he explained to her uh, that uh, the, the site of the fort had been discovered. In fact, they, the book shows uh, she and Bill uh, looking in the archaeological dig. On the right is uh, the visit of her, uh, of the Queen Elizabeth and her party to uh, the church at Jamestown. And on the far right in that black and white picture, you see Sam Robinson. And it was kind of a rite of passage uh, when you were in the fourth grade, at least uh, when I was a little boy, uh, you would go to Jamestown and you would hear Sam, and I got to hear Sam uh, give the story of the mother-in-law tree. Uh, many of you all who were here uh, remember Sam uh, gave tours of the churchyard. The mother-in-law tree was a tree that grew up between uh, the Reverend James Blair, the founder of William & Mary, and his wife. It had always been said that his, uh, her family 
did not like the fact uh, that they were uh, uh, that they had been married and that they were buried together. So this tree grew up in between the two graves and separated them. <laughs> Sam uh, told the story that this was the mother-in-law tree, that she couldn't separate them in life, but she could separate them afterwards. So, uh, and there's a little essay in the book about Sam and uh, his uh, commitment to history and uh, his uh, meeting the queen. Now, this is uh, two pictures from, two photographs from uh, the queen's visit separated by 50 years, uh, but, but her visit uh, to uh, the College of William and Mary. She's standing on the left-hand side. She is standing on the east front uh, facing Duke of Gloucester Street, and on the color picture on the right, she is on the west front uh, uh, where she is um, uh, at the back of the Wren Building. Uh, they, in both instances, the college president uh, uh, it accompanied her. You can see Prince Philip uh, in uh, the picture on the left. He did not accompany her to uh, William & Mary uh, on this trip in 2007. Uh, and she is standing out on the, uh, on, on the balcony. There's a galley, there's a gallery uh, that uh, uh, connects these two doors on opposite sides. And the uh, bell for the college is up in the cupola of the Wren Building, and uh, the uh, class of 2007 wanted to make her an honorary uh, alum. So uh, after they stepped off the balcony in that picture uh, down on the right, uh, they turned around, and the president of the class of 2007 said, and now, Your Majesty, now that you are a uh, member of the class of 2007, uh, you can go ahead and ring the bell. And the queen smiled very nicely and said, why don't you go ahead and do it? <laughs> uh, as you can see, one of the things that happened when I talked uh, to uh, the uh, uh, Buckingham Palace about what we were supposed to do and how we were supposed to arrange the visit, I said, you know, well, here's what she did in 57. And they kept coming back and saying, well, you know, we'd like to do that. We'd like to do the carriage ride. We'd like to go. And I was like, don't you want to uh, do anything, you know, new? And they said, Mr. Mann, we're all about tradition. <laughs> so as part of the tradition, you can see on the upper right, uh, she is uh, traveling uh, in a carriage down Duke of Gloucester Street with the president of Colonial Williamsburg at the time, who was Winthrop Rockefeller. And on the left in the color photo, she is traveling with uh, Colin and Nancy Campbell down the Duke of Gloucester Street. And uh, there were about 10,000 people that day that uh, greeted her as uh, she rode uh, her carriage. Now, she did visit uh, both the island and, uh, and Jamestown settlement, the two different sites that are down there at uh, Jamestown. On the left is her picture from uh, 2007. And on the right is her picture from 1957. Uh, and she toured, uh, in both instances, the restored fort. Uh, you can see in, uh, in the far right, in the black and white photo, uh, um, Prince Philip uh, was talking to uh, a, a young man who was in the stockade. Uh, <laughs> and he had got, and this picture, captures him with that twinkle in his eye because he's kind of known for his interesting comments. He had leaned over and said, what'd you do? <laughs> I'd like to mention a couple of other visits uh, that are often uh, overlooked. 
uh, as far as the queen uh, uh, coming to uh, America. Now this is a photograph that was taken on the 10th of July of 1976 when she visited Charlottesville. Uh, she spent about three hours and 20 minutes in Charlottesville. She landed at the airport. She uh, motorcaded over to the University of Virginia. Uh, she made a brief presentation, which we talk about at length in the uh, book. She walked up the lawn. She went to the first reception at the uh, rotunda in the dome room. This was right after they restored it for the uh, American Revolution. So she went up into the dome room where they had a luncheon. Governor Godwin uh, was the host. Uh, she came back down. They went out to Monticello, but right there at the base of Monticello is, uh, or was, the uh, Central Virginia Bicentennial Center, uh, which is now part of Piedmont Co uh, Community College. She went there, she planted a tree. We have all that documented uh, in the book. The tree is still alive. Uh, and then she went up to Monticello. Uh, she took a brief tour of Monticello. And these individuals uh, that are standing outside of Monticello are, are members of the Virginia General Assembly. Um, who, were, who uh, were presented to her, and then uh, she is standing there uh, receiving a gift, she and Prince Philip. Now, there's a little story about this stop, uh, which uh, I found very interesting. My son was doing research at the Monticello Library last year for this book, and when I went to pick him up, he said, I want you to see something, and he pulled out a file, and it was, you remember brownie pictures? Well, it was a, about a dozen brownie photographs, about that big. And in the uh, picture was Monticello, but on top of Monticello uh, was a royal ensign, the flag of the queen. And he said, can you figure out what these are? And they were all the same photo. And I looked at them. And my blood went cold because <laughs> it's kind of like the Royal Ensign flying at Monticello. I'm not sure Mr. Jefferson would feel really comfortable with that. <laughs> so we looked through the papers and the documents, and we really couldn't find any, any kind of documentation of this. But I started thinking about it, and I think that probably one of two things happened. It was, uh, and uh, having been a, an advanced man, it was either a joke and, and looking at the sunlight, it's very early in the morning, so maybe what happened is the British got on site before and they put the royal ensign up so that the Americans would come in and go, oh my goodness. Or it might have been something that they wanted to think about and they took the pictures and they duplicated them and they all, they passed them around to 12 people so that they could stand there and take a look at it and for whatever reason, they decided not to do it. Uh, I tend to think, I hope it was a joke, uh, because you don't see the Royal Ensign fly on the White House <laughs> or the Capitol when she visits that. I think that Virginians are the most gracious, hospitable people on the planet, but I also think that might have been taking it a little bit too far. <laughs> so, so no Royal Ensign, and uh, I've asked the folks at Monticello if they can have, if they can provide any answers, and they said that your guess is as good as ours. We, we tend to think it was a joke. Um, so uh, that's the, uh, that was one of the things that we discovered. I think that my son might have been the first person to go into that file since somebody threw him into the file and put him in the archives. 
Now, I'm very proud of this. This is a picture of uh, 55 Virginia Indians from the eight recognized tribes of Virginia who went for their first official visit of native Virginians to England over 200 years ago. This photo shows the group gathered in front of the statue of Pocahontas. The twin of the statue, the exact twin, it's a, it's a copy of the statue that is at Jamestown. And this statue is placed in the front yard of St. George's Church in Gravesend, England, where Pocahontas is buried. Now, the uh, Virginia Indians, uh, I was uh, involved in planning and executing this trip. They were very excited uh, to go to England for this official visit. And they were ex extremely appreciative of the good care that uh, the British had taken in preserving the, the memory of, uh, of Pocahontas. Unfortunately, we've had a situation in the United States where uh, some uh, Native American uh, burial sites have been robbed or plundered. Uh, but they, the Virginia Indians, were very touched and had a spiritual moment in being able to go to St. George's and be actually in the presence of the remains of the Princess Pocahontas. And it was, it was very moving for me to be there. Now, to speak briefly about the Jubilee, uh, most Americans outside of those who were fortunate enough to be in England saw the Jubilee from the perspective of TV cameras, and they enjoyed the pomp and the circumstance, the Epsom Derby, the Royal Concert, the flotilla coming down the James, uh, the James, Freudian slip, <laughs> the Thames, uh, the procession of royal carriages, these are a lot of the events uh, that included the trappings of a long-gone era. This photo documents what is thought to be the only officially recognized jubilee event in the United States. On May the 9th, Governor McDonnell, Speaker Bill Howell, and Lord Watson planted a London plane tree behind the state capitol in Richmond. And exactly one week later, Speaker Howell and Lord Watson watch as Queen Elizabeth plants an American holly tree. Just so that uh, some of you all have met Lord Watson, but in case you haven't, uh, he, this is he on the left. Um, now, the, uh, uh, oh, and it was, the weather was horrible. Uh, it had just hailed, it was raining, uh, but uh, as uh, the security folks would tell you, once she stepped out of the car, the sun broke out, the clouds parted. <laughs> and they had a very uh, enjoyable occasion. Now, I love this photo. It gives me goosebumps uh, because it represents the essence of what the book is about. Um, and so I wanna talk a little bit about the book specifically. Now, you saw the picture of Lord Watson. He's a member of the British House of Lords. He's a European business leader. He's a well-known commentator on the world situation. He is, he's written an expansive and fascinating essay that's included in the book on the global spread of democracy and how it's directly related to the spread of the use of the English language. We were honored to have the foreword written by Sandra Day O'Connor, the retired Associate Justice of the, of the United States Supreme Court. A connection here with the Virginia Historical Society is that Dr. James Kelly, the eminent historian and former director of museums here, uh, reflects on the Queen's formative years in a brief biography. The highly respected historian of Virginia colonial period, Warren Billings, who many of you all know, 
uh, very involved in the Library of Virginia and Preservation Virginia and Chairman Emeritus of the Department of History at the University of New Orleans. He provided his expertise to explain how and why the General Assembly of Virginia was created in 1619. The Right Honorable Lord Howell of Guilford, currently the Minister of State for the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He talks about the importance of the British Commonwealth. Another Richmond native who contributed a wonderful essay on the rule of law, but he now lives in Charlottesville, is Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson, who many of you all know. Uh, another British contributor was Richard Olver, who is currently the chairman of BAE Systems, and he addressed the topic of market structures and business concepts that are shared by the UK and the US. And uh, while respecting and complementing both the British and American political ideals, I thought it was appropriate to include in the book a, uh, a perspective from a, a minority viewpoint. Native American historian and commentator Karen Wood writes on the lack of respect for diversity that occurred before the commemoration in 2007. Uh, if you look uh, at the 1957 uh, uh, report. Uh, African Americans are not mentioned anywhere and Indians are, uh, Virginia Indians are mentioned once. Uh, we involved people like Steve Atkins, Daphne Reed, Karen Wood from the beginning so that they would become engaged and uh, feel comfortable with what we were doing with the commemoration and uh, it gave us a much uh, more realistic but a much richer perspective on what we were trying to accomplish. And it was, um, it was a joy uh, to have their perspective included. And also, uh, last but not least, would like to thank my publisher, Wayne Dementi of Dementi Milestone, who publishes here in Richmond. Um, his perspective and coordination led to the creation of what I consider a very attractive volume. Um, Many of you all, so to talk about this, this instance, this, uh, this photograph, many of you will recall that the summer of 2006, this is the Godspeed, the middle uh, uh, ship of the three ships. The Godspeed uh, went up the East Coast to make people aware of the fact that the anniversary for Jamestown was coming up. So it went to Alexandria, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Newport, Boston, New York, uh, and when it was in New York, before it put in berth, uh, it uh, sailed by the Statue of Liberty. And I personally think that uh, this photograph, um, in a unique way, represents the baggage that the British carried, but also the political lineage uh, coming to America as we Virginians have tried, sometimes with success, sometimes with some challenges, uh, to nurture freedom over the past 400 years. Uh, also noted in the book is the fact that the Queen <laughs> has uh, met and visited with 12 American presidents, stretching all the way back to uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And I think that provides us with a touchstone as to see how much the world has changed uh, in these past six decades. Um, in closing, I'd uh, like to uh, state uh, that Her Majesty, uh, I think, symbolizes 400 years of freedom's growth. There are incredibly valuable civics lessons that come about when studying the British roots of America's political institutions. Daphne talked about the fact that I was a, 
uh, a, a philosophy and government major when I was at William & Mary. I really focused in on the British antecedents of American political thought. And I thought that I had learned everything that there was to know about it. And now that I have dived back into it with renewed interest, I have seen uh, just a fascinating uh, uh, ties between the ideas that were brought over on those three ships in May of 1607 and how we took different routes. Uh, the British have the parliamentary, um, uh, the, the, the parliamentary system. We have our congressional system and just the different nuances. But some of these things uh, still, uh, there are traditions that if you asked an American legislator, why do you do that? They wouldn't know, but it is easy to kind of figure out once you uh, look at the British traditions. For example, uh, in, uh, during uh, the tension between uh, Charles I and Parliament, he went on uh, uh, the floor of the, the House of Commons to try to have someone arrested. And when he spoke to the speaker from the floor, the speaker said, I can't listen to you. You do not represent anybody on this floor. You are not a member of the House of Commons. You better get out or I'll have you arrested. So the, the interesting thing is fast forward to 400 years from now, the queen, when you saw that picture of the queen and Tim Kaine, they cannot be, uh, I, I was an employee of the House of Delegates for a few years. They cannot just walk on the floor and make a speech. They have to be, there has to be a committee that goes up and is organized, gets them, brings them down, and then they are announced. And then the House has to give its permission for them to speak. So, you know, this, this, the, the whole idea of, well, why is the executive prevented from being able to walk on the floor? Well, it comes from uh, uh, two, 350 years ago uh, when uh, uh, Charles I tried to have someone arrested on the floor of the House of Commons. Uh, that's the reason why they have, if you remember, uh, Black Rod, uh, who is the, uh, uh, the sergeant at arms for the House of Commons, who only people that are uh, passed by, uh, uh, through Black Rod or passed by Black Rod are allowed to uh, uh, speak on the floor of the House of Commons. So there are just these little twists and turns that you start to learn as to why uh, uh, the American system has evolved the way it did, but it, didn't, it wasn't created in a vacuum. At the beginning of the Queen's reign, and this is, uh, she's with Phil Emerson, who was the director of the uh, uh, Jamestown settlement, and she's standing uh, right outside of the three ships. Uh, at the beginning of her reign, there were less than, when she visited Jamestown in 1957, there were less than 45 democracies on the face of the earth. Now there are more than 120, and more people now live in some degree of relative freedom than ever before. Her steadfast commitment to the rule of law, representative government, private enterprise and entrepreneurialism, and respect for diversity has been a remarkable testimony as well as a source of strength to both British and American democratic ideals. Now, I was looking in a British source book and was amazed to find this closing quote. No less than Patrick Henry, the first governor of this commonwealth and whose words are etched on the side of this building, made a remarkable statement and I know of no more fitting way to close than by quoting Governor Henry. We are descended from a people whose government was founded on liberty, 
our glorious forefathers of Great Britain made liberty the foundation of everything. That country has become a great, mighty, and splendid nation, not because their government is strong and energetic, but, sir, because liberty is its direct end and foundation. Thank you very much. So uh, I have, uh, we'll open up for some questions here. Um, hopefully I've uh, given some ideas. Yes, sir. There has always been some abolish the monarchy uh, feeling in Great Britain. Has that grown or abated during Queen Elizabeth's reign? It has fluctuated wildly. Uh, and I would say that right now it is at its height. Uh, no, uh, that, that her popularity is at its height and that the does, uh, getting rid of the monarchy is at its nadir. Uh, they, and it's interesting, because over 60 years there's a lot that happens. But when she first came in, there was this uh, uh, kind of checking her out. She was uh, a, a young, glamorous individual. Uh, her father had been kind of a stoic, staid gentleman, so there was a real contrast in their styles. And uh, the, her popularity started to uh, rise. Um, it, it, the, the monarchy's nadir, as far as during her tenure, came with the death of uh, Princess Diana. And, uh, and, and it took a while for it to start to rebuild itself. Uh, it is at an all-time high right now. Uh, I think that one of the dynamics is the fact that uh, just purely she has lasted as long as she has. Uh, it's not an easy job. <laughs> uh, it looks easy, but there are a lot of strains and stresses, and her uh, steadfastness, her ability to uh, be flexible. I mean, if you saw the movie The Queen, uh, you saw how she conferred with Tony Blair during a unique crisis and was able to figure out how uh, to guide through that. Her, um, uh, her, uh, her popularity now, uh, because of the Jubilee, also because of the, it started to uptick uh, in uh, last year in April when, uh, the, uh, when Prince William and uh, Kate got married uh, and it's been climbing ever since. Her involvement in the Olympics uh, will, uh, uh, will, will, will probably give it another boost. Um, you know, there will never, you will never get rid of the anti-monarch uh, dynamic because there are people over there who feel it's, it's antiquated and it's a waste, primarily they talk about it being a waste of money. Uh, the, but I, you know, I, and I am not a monarchist. This is interesting because people uh, say, well, you must be a monarchist. No, I am, I, am a, I am a Democrat with a small d. I want people to choose how they want uh, their national symbols uh, and they want to be governed. Uh, but remember, she is the head of state. And over there, you get these situations where people say, I hate my government, but I love my queen. Uh, you know, there are, the, it provides them an opportunity for national pride 
that is unique, and it does uh, give us some opportunity to kind of look and, fi and try to figure out how can we posture symbols uh, that would be near as effective as she is. But uh, she gives a human touch to democracy, and the anti-monarch feeling is uh, uh, b well below 10% right now. Other questions? They'll run and get you a mic. In the face of um, anxiety about the cost of the monarchy, are there efforts actually by the queen to try and cut back? Uh, yes, uh, but what it, as opposed to cut back, uh, they have, she has started to pay income tax. She, she did not have to pay income tax, she now pays income tax. She now takes revenue that is made from her lands and, uh, and, her, uh, and, and pours it back into uh, the, the upkeep of the various palaces. Uh, you remember there was uh, the, the fire at Windsor Palace. Well, they did a very shrewd thing. Uh, they had never opened up Buckingham Palace to the public before. So they opened up Buckingham Palace. And as I, I went right after it opened, and I, as I remember, it was fairly expensive. It was, you know, between $15 and $20 to take the tour. But that money was used to restore Windsor Castle. So she doesn't pay income tax anymore. She, uh, the, uh, they, they do pour money back into uh, her holdings. Uh, they have cut back on the number of her relatives who are on the payroll. Uh, uh, they're down to 25. Um, and uh, so there is a, uh, and they, they you know, um, outside of the, I've been to, uh, I, I, let's see, I met with uh, Prince Michael, uh, who, lives in, uh, who lives in Kensington Palace. And um, it's a great apartment, <laughs> uh, and it is in a palace, but it's, you know, it's not, it's, it, 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 they, they, they have cut back. So to answer your question, yes, they have cut back, but they are also doing more to uh, uh, reinvest. Yes. Yes, yeah, since the queen is such an avid horsewoman, I was wondering if you have had documentation or information about her private visits, if any, to, say, Kentucky, where yeah. I know th I've heard she's been uh, visiting horse breeders there. Yes, that's a good question. Um, yes, uh, I talked about six state visits, uh, but she's made untold uh, number of private visits. The reason we don't know the numbers is because they were private. <laughs> uh, she did go to Kentucky. Um, the ambassador... Uh, Will Ferris um, is a horse breeder and lives in Kentucky, and she visited him. We uh, were, I have to tell you a little story, we were, we were assuming that the president, uh, and it was President George W. Bush at the time, and the queen were going to visit Jamestown at the same time. So uh, we had these below-the-radar screen meetings with the, ambassador, the British ambassador, and they came down, and we went to Jamestown and we showed what we might be looking at and how we might do some things. And then we had a lunch. And um, the, um, uh, so we were kind of talking about, well, when the queen and the president, and, the, and finally the ambassador goes, Mr. Mann, uh, the queen and the president are not coming. The, the queen is coming on uh, May the 3rd and 4th. And it was funny because everybody in the room looked at me like, and I said, we'll make it work. 
You know, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> you know? and, uh, and as it turned out, the president came the following week. But if you remember anything about that week, she came on Thursday and Friday, and the Saturday was the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> so she flew from Jamestown to Louisville, and then she went to the 2007 uh, Kentucky Derby. But yes, she is. Horses are, are her big passion. And in fact, we have a wonderful picture of she and Ronald Reagan uh, riding horses together at Windsor Castle in the book. Other questions? I have a question. Yes. <laughs> Prince Philip is 91 or 92, I believe. Right. And Queen Elizabeth is around 86 or 87. Correct. Despite what they might believe, they are not going to live forever. Will they be interred in Westminster Abbey? And if so, are all of the royalty interred there? No. Uh, recently, I don't know where they would be interred, um, but recent monarchs have been interred at Windsor Castle, at the chapel at Windsor Castle. The last monarch that I can remember uh, that was laid to rest in Westminster Abbey might have been uh, uh, like George the fifth, uh, but no, the the recent, uh, recently, um, and I'm trying to remember, and in fact, George the third is interred at Windsor Chapel, so uh, I would assume uh, that uh, that's probably where where they will be buried now. Um, you know, I think that uh, if you looked at the Jubilee and you saw the Queen standing on that barge for four hours, uh, she's a pretty tough cookie. Um, and of course, Philip got sick and had to go to the hospital the next day. Uh, remember, she is 86, but her mother lived to 101, in no small part due to the uh, uh, lunch ritual of a gin and tonic. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, the, there are some real strong genes in this family, which could um, uh, continue the line for a little while. Uh, further questions? Question. Yes. Uh, how would you characterize the relationship between uh, Margaret Thatcher and uh, Queen Elizabeth? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I would tend to, th oh, well, there is obvious mutual respect for each other's capabilities. I tend to think that there was a difference in style. Uh, but if you know the Brits very well, you know that they can endure a lot with a, even different styles. They can still put up with a lot. Um, I think that there were some things that were uh, done that both of them probably, and I have no inside information, probably bristled at. If you will recall when, um, let's see, uh, Lady Thatcher had, did not give any um, uh, uh, awards or medals to uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, when he first uh, was uh, a leader of South Africa. When the Queen went to South Africa after Mandela uh, had been uh, out of prison and had come to a leadership position, she presented him with a royal order immediately. Um, I think that was a deliberate decision on both their parts. Uh, not to spite one another, just that was a different attitude, uh, a, a, different, a different perspective on their parts. But I think that they, 
uh, I, as I said, I have no inside information. I have, I have heard uh, stories about the the fact that they do appreciate each other's capabilities, but they, you know, they might not be chummy. <laughs> Other questions? We got time for one more. Thank you very much. Um, I was just wondering with the recent law or rule that was passed that females that are born can now become the monarch, did she have a tremendous amount of input in that decision or was that basically a prime minister's decision? No, she had a lot of input. Oh yeah. See this, this, is, this is what's fascinating. You know that the prime minister and the queen talk every other week. They have a private discussion. It's very well portrayed in, um, the, in the movie, The Queen. So they talk, and there are no written notes. There are no recordings. They don't talk about what they talked about. She provides an institutional touchstone for a, a, a leader to bounce some ideas off of. I don't know who instigated the whole lineage thing. Uh, but I, um, uh, I imagine that it was something that ca came up in conversation, and uh, and that she would have uh, would have approved of. Um, uh, you know, a lot of um, a lot of uh, of credit goes to Kate, uh, uh, the, uh, the the Duchess of, of Cambridge. She has. Uh, been able to put another uh, level of glamour and youth. Apparently, they get along very, she and the Queen get along very, very well, which is different, uh, not saying anything bad about Princess Diana, but it's different than kind of the shyness and the insecurity that uh, Diana had at times. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Duchess of Cambridge right now is very willing to uh, spend time with the Queen and pitch in and so I, I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the British will tell you that everything is steeped in tradition and that they're looking, but they also kind of, they look at what the current situation is and then they're able to apply a rule when it's a, a good time to apply it. And I think in this instance, the whole idea, the, the, the popularity of the monarchy, the popularity of Kate, the popularity of William, uh, these are all opportunities for uh, uh, this decision to have been made. Thank you.